Welcome to the Moving in the Right Direction podcast, a podcast designed to help guide seniors from the home they love to the lifestyle they deserve. I'm your host, Chris Essenberg, and I am joined as always by senior real estate specialist, Bruce Nemovitz. So Bruce, I know we were talking before we got started about some situations that you go through every day, which is of course people that have not uh, appropriately planned uh, for you know what happens after a, a loved one passes away. And there's a lot of infighting, there's a lot of uh, discord within the family. Uh, and of course, this could all be uh, essentially potential, this could all hypothetically have been avoided if people had done the proper, uh, you know, elder law planning, things like that. Uh, would you care to share uh, any of the experiences that you've recently had? I know you see a lot of these every day. You know, Chris, it's so distressing uh, when a family comes to me to tell me a story. And I hear this so often, it's repeated over and over where a family was getting along just fine. Um, wasn't a lot of planning about mom or dad's passing. And then when that did happen, often one of the siblings are appointed as personal representative or executor of the estate. And if the proper um, conversations haven't been made prior to this, it so often turns out so unsatisfactory, even ugly. I just had um, maybe in the last year, uh, more than 10 different families come to me that said that the personal who was made power of attorney um, has no longer a relationship with one or two or all of the siblings because they felt that the personal representative was not performing in a way that they would have, uh, maybe doing things that they were unsure of, or even in some cases, they felt that the person who was the personal rep uh, was hiding some of the proceeds for their own family, which is insane. But uh, this happens over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. Wow. Okay. Per, and then we'll, um, and then Terry came in with whatever. Yeah. No, so, so then I'll just, uh, um, okay. So hold on. Um, that sounds absolutely, that sounds horrible. Uh, now, Terry, listening to that, what, what suggestions would you have uh, for, for folks that, uh, now what suggestions would you have for folks to try and uh, help themselves? Bleh, why can't I, I think about what I'm going to say too much? So Terry, listening to that, what advice do you have for people to avoid situations like that? How can they avoid uh, get finding themselves in situations like the one that Bruce just described? So I'm really excited to get to our guest today. Um, our guest today is Terry Campbell, attorney Terry Campbell. He has been practicing uh, as an attorney uh, for over 41 years, currently with Myrtle Wilkins and Campbell, and uh, specializes in uh, estate planning, elder law, and everything uh, that's associated with those topics. So I uh, want to welcome him in right now, Terry Campbell. Welcome so much. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, Terry, you've been uh, just, I, I know I mentioned it a little bit, but you've been practicing estate planning, elder law, 
things like that for uh, 41 years. Is that right? Has that always been your focus? Actually, when I first started practicing, we were just starting to steer into specializations. Um, so for the first few years, I did a number of things, most of which I realized right away I did not want to do. <laughs> um, but fortunately, was steered into the estate planning and elder law practices early on. I believe it met perhaps my personality as well as my skills. Um, I enjoy working with families, uh, often trying to achieve a goal. Yes, you have adversary positions. We have dysfunctional families. But overall, you're trying to help somebody achieve a goal, whether that is to avoid probate or to save assets from the cost of long-term care, helping maybe mom and dad transition out of a home. So the issues are varied, um, very challenging, but very satisfying as well. Absolutely. Now, uh, Bruce and I were just talking, Terry, before before you joined us about uh, some of the situations he's dealing with right now as far as families that are in a, a state of discord because they're dealing with the aftermath of mom or dad passing away and they haven't necessarily uh, prepped with the proper uh, legal action. Bruce, do you care to, to chime in with what you're seeing in your situations? Oh, yeah. Chris, thank you so much for bringing that up. And Terry, thank you for being on our podcast. I I just uh, was speaking with a, a close friend of mine, and he shared with me a story about his family. And this is a very, very, um, I think, wonderful family. They all care about each other. And what happened was his wife was appointed the personal rep executor of uh, her mother's estate. And her mother passed away. Her father had already passed away. And so she was in Milwaukee, uh, where we practice, and she was uh, basically doing her duties uh, as far as being that personal rep. And then the real estate came up. And of course, there's other siblings, and one was in one state, one was in another state, and they all had completely different ideas as to how she should be handling the sale of the home. Um, one of them actually thought that there was more assets then were told to them. And again, these had been very close siblings. And there were many disagreements. And at the end, because I won't go into the whole story, but when it was all over, there are three siblings and all three will never talk to each other again or invite any of each other again to anybody's wedding, etc. So um, I'm sure it's something you've seen. And I'm so glad you're on. Maybe you can elaborate on that. Well, in general, we're not very good communicators. Um, and, and that's getting worse rather than better. I always encourage my clients to have dialogue, have dialogue with your children. This doesn't mean you have to tell them what you have in your bank account or what you have in your IRA, because in general, parents often don't like to share that information. And, and I understand that. But your example is a perfect one. Talk to the kids and say, we're putting your sister in charge here. What she says goes. She's going to be the appointed personal rep. We don't want any squabbling. Here's how we want you to arrive at evaluation. You can resolve a lot of those petty bickering issues by just having a discussion like that. The problem is people usually don't have those discussions. Um, we have this very false understanding that 
we're all going to come together as friends when somebody passes away. And that's often not the case. If kids didn't get along during lifetime, which I would almost bet was your situation, they're not going to get along after mom or dad dies. So the more you can have that discussion, that dialogue, you're going to hopefully minimize. You're not going to eliminate all those issues, but hopefully you're going to minimize them. They did a good thing in your case. They had somebody appointed personal rep. So the advantage with that is you always have the right to schedule a hearing before the court and say, court, here's what I want to sell it for. I'm asking for the court to approve that sale. So, so going before the court, uh, do you want to elaborate on, on ex and, would, and, I, and sorry. I'm hoping I heard that right, that there was a personal representative. I think that's what Bruce said. So if that's the case, we're in a court process. So they, they did. So Bruce, can you tell us, did they actually have a personal representative in this case? Yes, there was a will. There was a personal rep appointed, which was my friend's wife. And sure. uh, again, it, it just turned out that the there was no communication prior to the passing of her mother. And therefore, so many misunderstandings and um, I think some distrust, maybe some came from sibling rivalry when they grew up. I have no idea, but uh, I see this, this story has been repeated many times in my career. So having the communication, especially as, as Terry, you pointed out before it gets to this point, uh, which I'm sure is definitely difficult and people don't want to do it, but trying to, to take that, uh, you know, to, to take that step and be prepared. Now, uh, ways that, you know, besides the communication, Terry, that you mentioned, which of course is key, and, and you made a good point, you know, in this modern day and age, I don't know that we as, as people are getting to be better communicators, even though we have all these different ways to do it. Actually, there's more ways for communication to, you know, get misinterpreted, things like that. Uh, so we need to have that communication also, uh, I would imagine that we need to have ways to communicate what those decisions of the communications are, such as like, you know, okay, if we decide who is power of attorney, I know that there's a tendency right now, people want to use forms for that. Uh, can you, uh, is that the best way to go about it? Should I, if, if, if we do establish a, a power of attorney, uh, you know, do we get paper forms or what's the best way to go about that if we can have that communication as a family and make that decision? For healthcare decisions, there actually are some some pretty good forms out there. You know, look at the look at what you want to accomplish, carefully review the forms. For financial powers of attorney, I think in general it's a mistake to try to complete a form because. If you do that, number one, you're not, you're not going to have dialogue perhaps with a professional about what are some of the things you need to include in those forms. And you may have thought you've done everything you need to avoid guardianship, to make sure your assets are preserved. But in fact, you may have left out key components. Um, I was looking at a power of attorney this morning for a client, and their, their concern is preserving assets as they perhaps become incapacitated. Now the power of attorney did have a gifting provision, but, a, but the gifting provision was matching IRS guidelines. So the gifting said, uh, my agent could make gifts to my kids as long as it doesn't exceed the annual exclusion, which is currently $15,000.
But when you get into the long-term care scenario of perhaps trying to preserve assets, we often are trying to make a larger, more sizable gift at once, all at once, which will exceed that. Now, people often say, well, I can't exceed that or I'm going to pay gift tax. That's not true because the estate and gift tax exemptions are aligned. So right now you have over an $11 million death credit. So if I wanted to give my son $100,000 this year, I do have to file a gift tax return. And on that return, I'm going to put down that I gave him $100,000. I was allowed $15,000 for my annual exclusion. So now I exceeded it by $85,000. But I'm going to reach over to my death credit, which is over $11 million. I'm going to use 85,000 of that now during my lifetime. So there's no gift taxes. And yet I've sped up that process, which is important when we're trying to preserve assets from the cost of long-term care. So they can dip into, if, if that's the right way to say it, essentially uh, borrow or, or dip into the death credit, which, which in every individual has over $11 million that they can use. Okay, so so that and that can be done. Is there a certain time period where that uh, where at which that becomes acceptable to do? Is uh, you know, or could someone start to do that when they were you know just just retired or something like that? Plenty of uh, plenty of awesome life ahead, but they want to start to do that as a way to uh, kind of get things in line. Is, is that possible? Can they do that? That's the million dollar question because the clients often ask us, well. When should I start doing that? Um, there are so many variables. Um, number one, what is your level of assets? Um, what assets do you think you need to keep to maintain a comfortable lifestyle? And maybe you're retired, but maybe you're still traveling. So you don't want to give up too much. Um, the problem is most people simply wait too long. We can't, we know what we want to do. We can't quite ever pull that trigger until somebody suddenly has a stroke. And now they're realizing, oh, you know, I've been talking about this for years, but I've never done anything. And, and when you get into long-term care, often people will read about the look back period. And the look back period means um, when, when can you make gifts and still perhaps be eligible for Medicaid? Um, this is a general rule of thumb. So please take it as just that, a general rule. If you make gifts within five years of needing long-term care, those gifts are gonna make you ineligible for Medicaid benefits for a certain period of time. Even if you don't have money to pay, it's still gonna make you ineligible for Medicaid. So then the dilemma is someone's had a stroke. And so we're talking to clients in fact, one of the first questions I say, I, this, I'm not saying this to be cold, I'm saying this to be very realistic. What do we think our life expectancy is? Um, maybe this person has a stroke, but they're still going to live for many, many years. Um, because when you start talking about your options, we have to talk about life expectancy, current level of assets, what kind of assets. Um, so now picture somebody who maybe has had some infirmities. 
we're trying to explain to them something that the three of us would find very complicated to have a discussion on. Now add to that somebody who's elderly, somebody who's had a stroke, somebody who has a serious illness, maybe early dementia. You know, how much can we do? And now I'm yeah. gonna circle all the way back to your power of attorney question. If we have a really good power of attorney in place and now mom, dad, your husband, whoever that might be is incapacitated, we can still carry out a plan according to what we know their wishes are. But with a defective power of attorney, we may be stuck. We, we simply may be paying the bills until the money runs out because we may not have any other options. You know, Terry, um, as you know, in my real estate practice, uh, I come across just about every scenario you can think of. And so many of them seem to revolve around this feeling that, okay, you know, mom or dad may need to go into assisted care or memory care, which as we know, memory care can be costing all the way up to 10,000 per month right now, uh, varies obviously in each and every place. But uh, what they'll ask me is that, geez, you know, um, with that kind of uh, funding that we're going to have to spend, uh, you know, how exactly do we know, can we get on Medicaid? Uh, here, there's some programs called family care. Uh, we'd like, of course, the state to help to pay for this, but mom or dad have assets, is the house included, etc. I can't give them all the answers. Um, can you generally talk about that? I can give you a few examples. Um, let's, let's talk about your married couple first. Um, so, so your wife is gonna go into some sort of long-term care facility and you're, you're the typical one, when I meet with somebody, they'll, I'm gonna ask them to bring me everything. I wanna see all the assets. I wanna see the income because they're gonna to wanna to know, well, what's, what am I gonna be able to keep? You know, I'm still, I still wanna live in the house. So what can I keep and still get my spouse on benefits? Your homestead, in almost all cases, will be totally exempt if your spouse continues to reside there. So often that's a big asset for folks. Um, the spouse who is staying at home, his or her retirement is exempt. Often that can be another big asset. You know, car, small life insurance, you can prepay burial. So then we look at what's left. So what we've, we've, we've put on this side of the table, all of those exempt assets. So then we look at what's left and you total them. And the community spouse, that's what we call the person staying in the home, can keep one half of those assets, but no more than 52,000 and no more than roughly about 132. So you can kind of see it's, it's, a, it's a middle squeeze. <laughs> sure. If you lots of money, you're not going to typically be worried about Medicaid. If you don't have any money, you're not going to be typically worried because you're going to get on Medicaid. It's that, and I don't know if it's fair to call, I don't know what the middle class actually is anymore, but you figure those people between 200 and 800,000 maybe, they're, they're, they're going to be squeezed because a lot of their assets are going to be exposed and the fear is you won't have enough for the community spouse to stay in the home. Now, and I want to go back again, I'm going to harp on durable powers of attorney. I always do. Um, because we're not always trying to preserve assets for kids. 
often we're trying to preserve assets for that spouse. And going back to your home, and I, I don't know how often Bruce sees something like this, but homes are typically held by both spouses. Sure. You know, so you hold it as joint tenants or survivorship marital property. So my spouse, let's say she's going into the nursing home and I'm going to go back to that lack of a good durable power of attorney. And, and I think, well, I'm going to get her on Medicaid because the home is exempt for me. And that's true. But what if I wanted to sell the home? So now the home's too much for me. Well, if my wife's name's on title, and I don't have a good durable power of attorney where I could have maybe put it in my name when she went in, the proceeds are going to be split, right? And now she's going to be kicked off Medicaid, perhaps. Now, there are some planning methods around this. So please, again, when you talk about Medicaid, I'm always a little bit squeamish because there's so many variables and exceptions. But it just go, it, it's another example of how it can go south. Um, one other example that I wanted to give before I forget, on old deeds, <clears throat> so people that bought their houses in the 70s or the 80s, our tax laws were a lot different back then. And spouses sometimes wouldn't hold their houses as joint tenants. They would hold it as tenants in common for tax purposes. <clears throat> so now a spouse dies and they call me and they say, well, you know, we hold everything jointly. So do we have to go through probate? And I had this happen last year. And I'm saying, no, not if you hold everything jointly. So, but there's a form we have to fill out for your real estate. So send me a copy of the deed. So I get a copy of the deed. Well, it wasn't joint. It was tenants in common. And what that means is each spouse has a divided, divided one half interest. So this poor woman who was like 90 years old, we're going through a probate so that she can get the half of the house that belonged to her husband. Wow. Because held as tenants in common. And that is not unusual with deeds, particularly from homes that were bought in the 70s and the 80s. Terry, you mentioned, uh, you know, durable power of attorney. And I run into this also where um, we may put a home on the market where somebody's mother is possibly um, getting towards hospice towards the end of their life. And maybe they have a durable power of attorney and the person passes before the closing. We've had this happen twice last year where uh, we started the transaction <clears throat> where mom or dad were alive. And by the end of the transaction, prior to closing, mom or dad passed away. Um, have you had that instance? And what can you say about that? Yeah, the, the, the reality is none of us know when that day is going to come. But in these situations where somebody has a very serious diagnosis, assuming that they have a, a plan that would make sense using a transfer on death designation. So in my case, I'll, I'll give my case. I have three kids. They don't get along on everything, but in general, they get along. So my wife and I, or let's say my wife had already passed away, I could do what's called a designation of beneficiary form for my property. And I record that. So I, I sign basically the equivalent of a deed that says I give my house to my three kids. Now, it's clearly a designation that occurs at my death. So if I'm still living and the closing occurs, there's no harm done. That deed just kind of floats away. 
But in your case, what if I didn't, my, my illness took me a little bit quicker than what anyone thought, rather than going through a probate for that house, my kids have title by simply filing a document with the Register of Deeds office and recording it. So they could proceed right away with almost no delay with your closing. So you were mentioning, of course, uh, before you were mentioning a durable power of attorney, which we want that as opposed to that defective power of attorney. I know in in the situation we just went over, uh, of course, after someone passes away, their power of attorney is no longer, uh, you know, in play, really. But but what I want to ask about now is uh, is 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 a will. You know, so I know we're, you're kind of alluding to that with what you were talking about. Um, but just, you know, um, when we're talking about a will, I, I wanted to just get your opinion. So that being said, what are the reasons then that I should still have a will if I'm going to do things like, uh, con- uh, you know, contingent beneficiaries and things like that? What, what are the purposes then of, of what is a will going to do for me? A will can still serve as a safety net. Because even though I've just described to you that perfect way of planning, people, sometimes it's institutions, they make a mistake. And they thought they covered everything, but we get the call when someone dies to say, well, I went to the bank and mom told me that we were listed as beneficiaries, but the bank says, no, we're not. So that's one reason. The other reason is sometimes you want to pass property by using a will. So back when my kids were 12, 9, and 6, if my wife and I both died, we wanted those assets to kind of come into a trust for them. And since we were young and poor, a will is a more economical way to do that rather than maybe doing a living trust. So we would force a probate. And in elder law, believe it or not, sometimes there's reasons to force a probate when a spouse dies, because there's other kinds of trust that you can use in a will, which is way beyond our discussion today, that would preserve assets from the cost of long-term care. So that that's gonna lead me to my next question about wills. This is all very, very informative. Thank you. Uh, I, I see, you know, uh, advertisements all the time about uh, services that essentially allow people to make their own wills, uh, uh, you know, that just, you, know, you can go online, answer a couple of questions, and within, you know, you know, an hour, you're, you'll have your will. Uh, is this a problem? Can this be problematic? I guess. Uh, have you seen it be problematic? Maybe is the better question when people are uh, using, you know, online services to create their will. Of course, I'm sure there are scenarios where that works out just fine. But, uh, you know, are there potential issues to be on the lookout for when uh, doing this? When I was much younger in my practice, I had a call from a couple that went to the same church as I went to. And they said, well, they love for me to come over. They'd like me to do their estate planning. And, you know, I'm a young attorney and I'm thinking that's, that's nice. I'm flattered that they have that kind of trust. And so I go over and they have all this paperwork spread out on their table and it was a kit. And they, and so they wanted me to look at the kit to see if they'd filled out the forms correctly. So we, we went through the kit and I said, well, here's exactly what these forms do. And they, they said, well, that sounds really good. And I said, now let me tell you what the forms would not cover. And they said, well, no, we, we, we would want that covered. 
That's the problem with any form. You know what? It might work. And if you're comfortable enough doing your distributions of assets at death that it might work and it might not work, then you can use a form, but you are taking a substantial risk that it won't cover every possible contingency that could occur. Um, maybe you've left money to children and you did this form will years ago. And one of the children have now become disabled and they're on public benefits. And if they inherit directly, they might be kicked off those benefits. Well, the, the kit probably doesn't have the capability of the personal representative maybe setting up a special, special needs trust for that child. So there's, and I could go on and on. There's just so many ways it can go wrong. To me, it's not worth that kind of risk. It certainly is a very, very big undertaking and a really important one, right? With and, and you, know, I think you know if someone is you know I've done my taxes through TurboTax and I was you know it's fairly straightforward, uh, easy, uh, easy process. But you know when we're getting into using online services for preparing something that can have so many uh, intricacies and so many things that change over time that can have such a big effect, I can't imagine uh, you know that I would want to necessarily just leave that up to, you know, an online form to catch and understand and check because there are so many specific situations. Well, you and I've talked about how all of these relate. And let's say the, let's say the will, it was a great form. They, they found the perfect form for the will. The problem is they don't perhaps realize that's only one component. So when they did that form will, did they also make sure they had the right designations of the beneficiaries, how it should be on their 401k or the IRA or the life insurance? Do they, do they get the fact that the will means you're going to go through probate unless you've done other things as part of your plan? My bet is, in general, they won't know that. As you're talking, Terry, I got it. It's it's odd timing, but this morning I, I received a phone call from one of my past clients and his mother had passed away in November, sadly from COVID. And he, he said to me, um, you know, I really didn't look at any of the paperwork or anything. My friends are all telling me um, I should just go to the courthouse with the deed and have the house put in my name. That really happened this morning. <laughs> so um, ignorance um, is not bliss in these cases. And that, again, just happened to me today. You know, and in Bruce and Wisconsin, you know, we're a marital property state and spouses get the false idea that that means automatically, no matter what else they've done, when one spouse dies, the other just gets everything. And that's not the case. It's not the case. It's dependent on all these other things we've talked about. And Terry, this, this was not the spouse. This was her son. Well, yeah. No, some unpleasant surprises. <laughs> Definitely. I, I, so, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this and as someone that is a bit of a novice when it comes to um, elder law terms and stuff like that, it's, I think it's easy for people probably listening to, to be like, okay, this is getting a little complicated. I, I, I'm not really sure what to do here. It's a little overwhelming. But I do know that also, like sometimes the the, the carrot that can uh, really you know motivate me is the situations that can happen if I don't necessarily follow through on this, if I don't do my due diligence. 
So I'm curious, you know, if you could give us an example or two of some of the uh, some of the very unfavorable outcomes you have seen from folks that uh, have, you know, waited too long or not done their, uh, you know, not done their due diligence when, uh, you know, preparing for this uh, stage in life. Well, for the lack of powers of attorney, our office has done a lot of unnecessary court guardianships, which can be very expensive. It can be very traumatic. Um, if your family is already one that doesn't get along, you've got another forum for people to argue now on who should be the guardian, um, because that's what happens even with spouses that don't have good powers of attorney. I, I don't have the legal authority to sell our house if my wife becomes incapacitated. I can't just sign her name. So even if I wanted to sell our house, I'm gonna to have to get some sort of court involvement if she's now mentally incapacitated. Probate, um, you know, we have a probate that I've just concluded, but I should say I'm close, that lasted for two and a half years um, because of lack of proper planning. Um, cost a tremendous amount of legal fees and court costs that could have, for the most part, been avoided. Now, in all honesty, this was also a deceased person who I'm not sure would have ever done proper planning. <laughs> uh, just, but, but still, giving you some of, this, some of the things that happen, and when you talk about long-term care costs, if you don't have the ability to do any kind of planning to preserve assets, your assets, if you live long enough in a long-term care facility is gonna be used to pay those costs. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here promoting, give away all your money to get on Medicaid. There are reasons to understand why you may want to be a private pay resident for periods of time. And there, there are facilities that may require you to be a private pay patient for a period of time. The key is plan. <laughs> people don't implement a good thorough plan and when you do implement such a plan periodically review it um, that's a real basic I mean it sounds almost so simple why should I even say it but it, it's the lack of the plan that creates most of these problems so if I so if so Terry if I'm somebody that has a, a few things set up already. Perhaps I have a will. Perhaps I've, I've done a little bit of this, but not a ton. Um, you know, maybe I'm in a situation where I don't, you know, I don't anticipate this stuff is going to be happening for me in the near future. Or maybe I'm just, uh, I, I'm worried about my, uh, my parent, my, my, my mother or father. I think, well, they've got some stuff. I know they have some stuff set up already, but I want to check because I think if I can take anything away from our conversation here, uh, just as a, as a headline, it is that there are many specific things that can happen that are uh, unfavorable if we don't, you know, reevaluate and recheck on our plan and keep it updated uh, with, you know, having all the knowledge that we need to, to make the best informed decisions. So how could I get started uh, as opposed to just, I want to make sure that I'm in the best possible situation. I want to, you know, dot my dot my I's, uh, cross my T's, make sure everything is in the best place that it can be either for myself or for mom and dad. What are some of the, what's the first step that you would recommend to a person that's in that situation? Well, first try to start with something simple that doesn't cost you anything. Organize what you have. 
Because often on the phone, when people first call us, they'll say, oh, I think we have an estate of X amount of dollars. But when I make them gather everything and come in, they find out they're very wrong. Their, their number's not, they haven't, they haven't counted something. Maybe they didn't count life insurance. Um, maybe they forgot about bonds they've got in the safe deposit box that they bought US bonds years ago. So we make them gather everything, gather everything and organize it, and then find a qualified professional and at least have a consultation. Um, often people are afraid. They're, they're afraid of what the price tag might be when they start planning. And so um, our firm, like many firms on the estate planning side, and even sometimes on the initial Medicaid consult side, we will flat fee what it's going to cost. So people know, okay, I get it. And we'll say, okay, this is what we think you want. You want this. You want us to talk about this. You want us to review this. If we do that, this is what you're going to, this is what we're going to charge you for that consult. We find people like that because then it's, it's not an unknown number. Sure. And they decide, they, they, they then are free to decide after that consult where we maybe talk about options they might want to implement as to whether they do it or not. So just gathering everything up first, that's a great first step. Gather up what you have, really take the time to do that and then get a consultation. And a lot of times, uh, you're, uh, Terry, you're mentioning that, that your firm and other firms will, will just give a flat rate for that. So people know what to expect. Okay, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to bring everything together. I'm going to pay this uh, flat amount. And I'm going to really know what my options are then. Exactly. Exactly. And people are shocked sometimes. Sometimes people come in very concerned about they're going to lose everything. And after we talk, we show them they have a lot of assets that are going to be exempt or that we can make exempt. And maybe they're pushing a panic button that they don't have to. Um, For sure. That's got to be a great, that's got to be great uh, when you get to deliver that type of news to, to a family. We actually had that happen just within the past two weeks where um, a gentleman's spouse at a very young age has, has become severely um, disabled. And he came in convinced almost everything they had, they were going to lose, but he had a substantial retirement account. And when we told him that was exempt, I, I, it seriously, he's, we were, this was in the first two minutes of our meeting. And he said, okay, thank you. I'm out of here. And, and, he, <laughs> and, he, and he left, but we'd already told him almost any more than what he could have imagined as far as a relief. Now we went on and talked about other things, but he had no idea that that was going to be exempt for him. You know, I've been in, in real estate for over 43 years and I learned something new every day. And today I learned more than one thing uh, <laughs> from an expert who I trust because, uh, again, I think, uh, Terry, you and I will be meeting a few more times about uh, my particular family and my will. So um, I have the highest regard for you. I'm so glad that you shared this with, uh, with our listeners, because again, it is so confusing and there's so many aspects and so many misconceptions. And I hope today, uh, if we can help one person out there listening, uh, we've done our job. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Terry, you mentioned the consultation, uh, your firm, uh, Myrtle Wilkins and Campbell certainly do those uh, do, do those um, assessments there. So if someone in the uh, southeastern Wisconsin region uh, wanted to get in touch with you, uh, how would they go about doing that? Certainly they could look at our website, 
Um, they could, they have all of our emails are on the website. They can also feel free to call. Um, I almost always will talk to somebody before scheduling anything because I, I really want to have the best ideas to what they want to achieve. Um, what is it they want to achieve through this uh, consultation? I'm going to want to find out, do they have documents in place? Because I'm, I'm going to want to look at those documents. Um, that's the best way to start. Perfect. Well, and also just for our listeners, the website uh, and phone number for uh, Terry and his firm will be in the show notes. So you can just grab that right from there and uh, and be in contact with uh, with Terry or somebody else uh, at his firm. So again, thank you, Terry, again, so much for uh, for for joining us today and, and for um, sharing with us all this information. I think it's really, really valuable stuff. And I hope that uh, the folks uh I hope folks listening will take full advantage of this information. So uh, before we close up, Bruce, uh, where can folks find uh, find you and learn more about your books and other things you got uh, going on? As always, you can go to brucesteam.com. And again, Bruce's team does not have an apostrophe. Yep. Uh, our phone number is 262-242-6177. And my wife, Jean, will answer the phone and I will be happy to talk to anyone um, again um, that wants to reach us at either our website or our phone number. Great. Well, well, thank you, Bruce. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. And hey, we would love if you could subscribe to the podcast so uh, you out there will not miss any great future episodes. Uh, you can, of course, find us at Bruce's website, which he said, of course, was brucesteam.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So thank you again so much for listening and make sure to join us next week as we keep you moving in the right direction. We'll see you then.